Welcome to episode eight of the GeoTrek podcast. This episode is part two of our conversation with Eleanor Kitzman, who's a lawyer, insurance executive, entrepreneur, and former insurance commissioner for South Carolina and Texas. Episode seven was part one of this conversation containing insights into the February 2021 Texas freeze. We also followed Eleanor's journey into insurance and gained perspective on how to build better through the Fortified program. Part two picks up our conversation by talking about the impact of trees as a wind hazard in our communities, discussing the surprising impact of hail as a major peril to roofs, and reflecting on both what we are doing well and where we can improve in regards to disaster preparedness as a society. We also touch on some emerging geospatial technology that is helping us assess the conditions of buildings and roofs after hurricanes. A few housekeeping notes, we have made an intentional choice to keep our podcast between 30 and 39 minutes in length to keep content relatively concise and focused. For guests like Eleanor Kitzman, who have many valuable insights that we can't fit into 39 minutes, we've made the podcast into two parts. You can think of them like chapters in a book. You can listen to each podcast on your commute home from work or while cooking dinner. We'd love to hear feedback from you on the length of this podcast. Is this pretty much what you're looking for? Would you prefer a longer podcast or shorter? Give us a shout and let us know how you feel about that. Another housekeeping note relates to the structure of GeoTrek. In addition to podcasts, we also have blog posts that also look beyond the weather, looking at deeper stories like decision-making and how to make our communities more resilient. If you go to the GeoTrek website, that's geo-trek.com, on the pull-down menu, select categories, and then, for example, one of the categories is called Building Better. If you select that, you'll get some stories that relate very well to this current podcast series with Eleanor Kitzman. I wrote a blog post in August of 2021 called Building Better in Hurricane Country. It shares some insights that I found from doing hurricane field work on the scene after hurricanes and seeing the impacts of how building better can make a huge difference in communities. One of the stories I shared was from Southwest Louisiana in August of 2020 following Hurricane Laura. I came across two subdivisions that were within a mile of each other. I estimate that the wind gusts in both of these subdivisions were category four hurricane winds of around 140 miles an hour. I was amazed to see that one of the subdivisions was pretty untouched. I mean, the roofs looked together. I did not see substantial damage in an entire subdivision. And as I drove around, some homeowners told me that the same builder built that entire subdivision very well. However, the other subdivision took on substantial hurricane damage. I saw parts of roofs missing. I saw a lot of minor to moderate roof damage as well with shingles off and other damage to siding and roofs as well, seeing a tremendous difference in the impacts of the winds just less than a mile from the subdivision that was relatively untouched. That was one of the best examples I've ever seen of how building better can make a tremendous difference in your community. These examples really verified in the field a lot of the insights that Eleanor Kitzman has been sharing on this podcast. Again, this is episode eight. If you didn't get a chance to listen to episode seven, I'd encourage you to start there. I'm excited now to get into episode eight with Eleanor. Without further ado, let's pick up our conversation with Eleanor Kitzman, where we were discussing the surprising inland impact of hurricanes and tremendous impact of tree falls in our communities. Look at the tremendous tree falls in Georgia from both Sally and also Hurricane Michael back in 2018. I right. Mean, a huge swath of just tremendous damage well inland. Yeah. Well, and in some of these places, and so like in North Carolina, South Carolina, and even, you know, uh, in parts of Texas in the Houston area, lots of pine trees. Pine trees are terrible. 
Eleanor, I'm glad we're talking about trees. A lot of people that are into weather and climate, they're also into the environment. They're also into, you know, having a quote unquote green life. And that often involves having a lot of trees, but they may not see the downside of having a lot of trees in urban or suburban spaces where, from my understanding, trees can increase the damage from hurricanes and just strong winds tremendously. Is that right? Sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, if you are going to have trees, uh, you, you want them to be far enough away uh, you know, from the house, you know, they're, they're not likely to fall over, uh, you know, and, and uh, because there, there's no, no roofing system. Uh, it can stand up to, you know, a large tree, uh, you know, falling on it. And certainly, you know, there are tr some trees that are, you know, better, you know, than others for things like this. But, you know, you think about like, I mean, Mississippi uh, with Katrina, the oak trees. I mean, the Mississippi coast was beautiful with all, you know, those, those oak trees right there on the coast. I mean, just, just, uh, I think just one of the prettiest, uh, you know, beach areas because of that. But uh, those oak trees were, were, were just terrible. It is something that you need to, to think about and be aware of. And homeowners need to, they need to know that their insurance companies are certainly aware of the trees around the property. And that that goes into, you know, their underwriting and pricing, you know, of that policy. Eleanor, how have you found success in, in helping with education of this? I think you were telling me a story before of a homeowners association that even like fought against um, taking trees down, you know, and here they have these trees that are very much threatening houses with tree falls and hurricanes and strong wind events. Yeah. So th this was back, in, you know, in, in South Carolina when I was, you know, commissioner there and it, this was down in Hilton Head, and Hilton Head has a lot of pine trees. You know, and that was just part of, and Hilton Head was a very, you know, it was a planned community. It was the, the way that it was constructed, uh, you know, the, you almost like couldn't see like houses, you know, from the road and, and, or it was just, you know, very aesthetically, it was, you know, it was very nice and, and, and trees was a big part of that. And so a lot of these homeowners associations you had to get permission, you know, to cut down trees. And this was back in probably 06, that there was like a real standoff with, uh, because some homeowners are being told by their insurance company uh, that they need to remove these trees or they're going to lose their insurance. And the homeowners association, you know, resisted at first, allowing them to uh, cut these trees down. And, uh, you know, they, they finally just had, had no choice but uh, to acquiesce on this because they had, you know, so many homeowners that were in, you know, in this position. Eleanor, in, in a case where an HOA is not involved, let's say someone has a beautiful house, they love their home, they want to protect it, and there's a neighbor's tree, right? They talk to their neighbor, hey, what about this tree? The neighbor's not willing to do anything. There are ways that they can send like a certified letter or, or something. How do, how do they approach that legally to show, look, I've brought this to the attention of my neighbor, and therefore I should not be liable if their tree falls on my house? You know, unfortunately, there's really not a, an easy way to to deal with that. You know, you I'm not aware of you know any any way that you can like force your neighbor to cut back a tree. Now, of course, if this tree is hanging over your house and onto your property, uh, I think you probably have the right to cut that back. But if a neighbor's tree falls on your house, your insurance is going to cover that. You know, th th this is one of those things that why it's just so important for, you know, for, for people, for communities to, to work together 
that, you know, that this, you know, when they say no man is an island, no house, you know, is an island, you know, you are part of a community. Well, and you know, we're talking about trees now, but that probably goes as well for my neighbor's roof, right? It's in my best interest that they have a better built roof that's not going to blow over onto my house. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. You know, it, it, if you're the only house in the neighborhood that has a fortified roof, well, you know, good for you, but it'd be better if, if your neighbors did too, because... Uh, debris from their roof or shingles that come off or and that could go flying through you know your windows or something so they, you know sort of my mission is building community resilience one roof at a time uh, but it, it 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 takes more than one but if you know you get the first one and when you see after a storm uh, in fact I've got you know some great materials and, and photos after Hurricane Sally of you know these uh, people that had fortified roofs and they didn't have damage and you see they don't have a blue tarp you know on their on their rooftop they don't have waterlogged furniture and things that they've had to uh, in carpet that they've had to take out of their house uh, because they had a fortified roof but it means they were able to go and help their neighbors and their their neighbors were able to come you know and kind of take refuge somewhat you know in in their homes at least you know, to have a meal or get something to drink or, you know, while they were working at cleaning up uh, over at their property because they've got a big hole in their roof and, you know, they can't live there. And that's right. The more resilient we can make ourselves, we're not only minimizing our own damage, but then we're able to serve our community, like, like you had said. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a good point, too. Not only that my neighbor's roof, if it's not built as well, it could send debris over my way, but I'm picturing, okay, if, if, 20, if 19 out of 20 houses are severely damaged in a community, it's, it's going to be weeks or even months where it's just basically vacated, right? So, I mean, yeah. there's also the community feel after a disaster. Uh, do we return to life in a vibrant way or we just have abandoned neighborhoods as well, you know? Well, and you think about from the standpoint of that local government, you know, if, when you have just widespread damage and people aren't able to live in their homes, they're not able to work, you know, what does that do, uh, you know, to the community? Uh, the, what it does to the, the, the tax base, uh, people aren't working, they don't have money to spend. There's just every reason for, you know, sort of everyone in that, in that chain, you know, in that community to be involved in this, this, this effort at community resilience. You know, employers, you know, I think there are things that they could do to help their employees uh, to, to, to live in, to make sure that their their homes are fortified or at least you know are strengthened and that that they're going to have this resiliency to to recover you know after the storm uh, you you can't uh, you can't prevent the storm but you can prevent a lot of the damage sure and Eleanor it seems like a part of resiliency as well as having the foresight to see what could potentially happen. I know we've talked about wind, we've talked about flooding, but it seems like hail is becoming a peril that's talked about even more and more. Just uh, as far as I know, IBHS calls it a core peril. And uh, could you share a little bit about the research that's being done on hail? Uh, it, it seems like this year, Oklahoma, Texas, and some other states had some tremendous hail events. Um, what's being done with that? And how is that emerging as an important peril as well? There are insurance companies Companies that they'll write on the coast, but they won't write in the Dallas-Fort Worth area because of hail. Hail has been a problem in Texas for a long time. Insurance companies in this state paid out more in hail losses in the last 10 years than they did in hurricane losses. 
And I had people, people in, in the insurance industry that sort of like argued with me. They said, no, there, there's, there's no way. That can't be true. And I said, I'm, I'm looking at the loss numbers. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the numbers don't lie. As one friend of mine uh, in, in the insurance business in Texas said, there, there's, a, there's a hailstorm somewhere in Texas all the time. You just don't know about it because uh, it doesn't get the kind of attention. So IBHS does have a fortified standard for hail you know, to protect against hail damage. And it is effective up to about two inch hail. So what would that be about like golf ball size? So the fortified hail standard just, it uses even a different kind of shingle than you would use for the hurricane standard because it is gonna be more resistant to, you know, damage from hailstones, but it is really only effective uh, up to about two inches. And it's, it's more expensive the additional cost for a fortified hail roof is more than it is for, you know, the hurricane, but there is a standard there. There are some roofing materials that, that I've seen. I saw like at a, at a roofing contractors association, uh, I think, you know, last year it was in Dallas and it was before COVID and I actually went and, you know, there are some that they like, they use like recycled tires and, uh, you know, they do some things. There's one that, I mean, they had, like, I want to say it's like a four inch, you know, like size hail. And they just would like shoot it at this, at, at this material. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it could stand up to that, but it was just not cost effective. And, and that's, you know, one of the, you know, the, the, the key is coming up with, you know, these cost effective measures. Yes, they're a little more expensive, but they reduce the damage and the savings that you get from that basically pays, you know, for the additional cost for that stronger standard. You know, it's almost like self-financing. And some of these other ones that are more effective, they're, they're just, they're not as, you know, cost effective. So when I was commissioner in Texas, so this would have been in like 11, 12, 13, they'd been working on hail and they, they did their first hail test in their research center and they were actually using ice trays to make hailstones and uh, they just made a bunch of uh, you know simulated hailstones they have these the uh, research center has this enormous it looks like a uh, like an airplane hangar it's just it's big it's really really high ceilings there's a wall of fans on one side that simulates the you know the winds and they had these big like guns up in the ceiling of, of this that, that they would shoot, you know, these hailstones down onto rooftops. So at the research center, uh, when you first drive into, into, up into the research center over on the side, you see all of these sort of cutaways of houses that are it's just a bunch of rooftops that they've got sitting out there. They have you know, different types of shingles. Some have been out there longer than others, but they're testing the shingles. So they really and, have these different models where they can say, okay, let's oh yeah. test hail on this kind of roof today. Yes, yes. And they'll say, let's test it on, you know, a roof that is, you know, that's, that's brand new. Let's test it on one that's been sitting out in the elements for two years, for five years, for eight years. So yeah, they can, they can test all of that. And so it is just so cool to see just all of these rooftops and just, you know, from time to time, you know, they'll wheel them in into the test facility, you know, and test them for different things. They build, you know, simulate a, a house. They, uh, you know, do ones where they'll, they'll put, you know, like two, two small houses that they've built side by side 
and you know one will have all of the you know the protections and the other one doesn't and they sit on the floor of this rotates so that you know they they can you know kind of turn it different directions and they can control you know to control well, if the wind is coming in from this direction if it's coming from the south if it's coming from the north they'll test it with windows that are cracked versus you know a home that is sealed up which is the better you know way to do uh, and I'll just say, close all your windows, you know, do not leave windows cracked. Because if you do what you see on, the, you know, the house that had, you know, wind was like able to get into the house, the side of the house collapsed after a little while, uh, just because of the, you know, the, the, the pressure, the negative pressure. Uh, Sounds like yeah, they really do extensive research to kind of, you know, look at these little nuances and how uh, just changing one component can change the damage. And I believe you were also telling me that some of the research on the types of hail has expanded. Didn't you say IBHS actually has a field team that goes out? Oh, yeah. Actually... Yeah, no, they do. I mean, you know, in the spring, especially, you know, when it's hail season, they've got, uh, you know, groups of people that they are always, you know, ready kind of on a moment's notice to, to go somewhere where they think there's going to be a hailstorm. And then as soon as it's, it's safe, they're out in the field collecting hailstones and, and putting them in coolers and bringing them back and, and testing them. And, uh, and actually at their research center, they've got some really cool, oh, what are the, uh, it's not plexiglass, but the, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name, but they have some of these, uh, you know, hailstones that, they've got the lucite uh, that uh, are actually like hailstones. And what you see what they find is that, that there's different density of hailstones. Some of the stones will have a lot of debris in them. You know, some of them are softer than others. The shapes are, you know, different. Uh, so it's more than, you know, just the size. Um, and that's what they want to, uh, they, they want to see what all is out there and what do they need to be, uh, you know, uh, testing for. Oh, wow. That's really fascinating work. You know, I'm a big fan of observational field science of actually getting out there in the field and making observations. We've seen tremendous advancements in flood risk analysis by actually getting out there and observing what's happening on the landscape. The weather models are always improving, but there's no substitute for actually getting out there and taking observations. So that's really interesting that these teams are out there collecting hailstones and getting an idea, like you said, that it's more than just the size of the hail, but the, the different shapes of the hail and the different way that it can look. When you look back, Eleanor, what is the greatest way we've progressed in disaster science, say, in the past several decades? And then what's the biggest challenge, do you think, ahead of us? You know, I would say that we have made a lot of progress when it comes to knowing how to build better and how to do it in a, you know, relatively cost-effective way. So we have the ability. We haven't implemented it enough. I mean, we still have places where the building codes are not as good as they should be. You know, Texas, kind of notoriously, we do not have a statewide building code. It's, you know, every jurisdiction uh, decides what they want to do for themselves. Now, I will say that, you know, the, the coastal communities, they've all adopted, it, it may not be the most recent building code, but, it, you know, it's a stronger code. But, you know, building codes are designed for life safety, not... To protect against property damage. And so that's why Fortified comes in on top of a building code. But certainly the stronger the building code, the less that you have to retrofit to get to, you know, the Fortified standard. Because you're so just I'm, starting off at a much better you're place. You're starting at a with. better place. Right, right. 
And that's why, you know, for insurance companies, I always want to know the year that your house was built because then they can go back and look and see, well, what building code was in effect. So, you know, I think that, you know, we've done a good job, uh, you know, with that, but it's, it's now, it's just, you know, sort of getting it out there. What we haven't done a good job at is we are so focused on disaster recovery as opposed to disaster prevention. And, you know, like I say, you, you, you may not be able to prevent the storm itself, but a category five storm that goes out into the Atlantic is not called a disaster. It's called a fish storm because there are no people. And we focus, we're, you know, so much of our resources go to after the storm and, you know, we're great, you know, about, you know, FEMA and the state emergency management and getting resources into those communities. But it is really hard to build back better after a disaster because there's so much emphasis on building back quickly. Everybody says they want to, you know, build back better, but after you've been out of your home for several weeks or months, you, you just, you want something. And so uh, we, we get a little lax. The incentive is that. to get something um, up and running quickly to get people back in their homes and uh, not to take extra time to, to right. build better at that time. Right. And, but every time we do that, you know, so when we just put on a conventional roof, which, you know, that roof is going to be good for a couple of years, you know, a new roof, any new roof is better than, you know, an old roof, but, you know, it's not going to be as good as fortified. Uh, it is not going to stand up. But if we, so after a storm, ideally we would be going in and replacing all of those roofs with, with fortified. But the reality is that just, you know, doesn't happen. In fact, I think there was a, a little report that was put out a couple of weeks ago that I think I sent you from a company called Cape Analytics that, you know, they use aerial imagery to assess roof condition. And they have the, this imagery uh, that is being captured on a, on a regular basis. And especially, you know, in, in large areas, they're doing it frequently. They're capturing, you know, this imagery. They were able to look at their, you know, video, these images that they had from just before Ida and then after Ida. And they estimate that there were 90,000 roofs that changed condition. And now what that means is that, you know, some that were in excellent condition before the storm, maybe now, or, uh, you know, they're in good condition. They had some damage, but, you know, but it was cosmetic and the roof structure is, is still in good condition. Some that were in good condition that had more damage, they're now in fair and then fair that went to poor. Anything that's in poor condition is going to have to be replaced. And a lot of the ones that are in fair condition are going to end up being replaced. So just from that, we know there's probably a good 50,000 roofs that need to be replaced as a result of Ida. And we know where they are. We don't have to wait for homeowners to raise their hand and say, I need a new roof. We have the ability from, the, from technology to drill down to a street address and say, we know this roof needs to be replaced. Yeah, that's um, interesting. With, with drone imagery and uh, aerial photos, satellite imagery, it seems like we're, we're imaging more than ever from above and can, right. I think, get a better idea about roof conditions. Than we used and the technology has gotten so much better. The resolution is better and it's also, it's being digitized and with, you know, like machine learning. So if there are 90,000 roofs that change condition, that does not mean that someone looked at 90,000 photos. 
right? We can you know, um, to make that assessment. Exactly, have algorithms. I, I suppose right. go in and look at how pixels have changed color. You know, right? In those certain right. areas. Yeah, that's fascinating, Eleanor. Really appreciate your insights on this, and especially your insights on you know, how we can be more proactive instead of reactive. I think that's really the key to making our disaster prone communities more resilient. That is the key. And, you know, you have to do it. Uh, you know, we need to be you know, doing it now because, you know, once, once the storm is in the Gulf, it's kind of too late. But if people can, you know, just hang in there and take a little bit of extra time. And if you are having to replace the roof because of a storm, try to get a better roof and try to avoid this you know, in, in the first place. I think a lot of people, if they haven't been through this process, they're thinking, well, I have insurance. I have good insurance. And if you think about it, you know, the best insurance company in the world is only ever going to send you a check. And, and it's not going to be for the full cost to replace your roof. You have a deductible, but they also, they are not sending somebody out to replace your roof. You know, you are on your own. And if the damage is bad enough and you're not able to live in your home and you know, you're staying in a, in a motel or with your in-laws and with, you know, your kids and the dog. And uh, wouldn't it just be better to avoid all of that in the first place? Yeah, Eleanor, that's a good point. It's a major life impact when you're it is. relocated out of your home for, say, three months or six months, right? Um, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a huge impact on people's lives. The very last question I wanted to ask you, how much do you think that this concept of say building a better roof, how much of that do you think is just uh, in some cases lack of ability to pay versus say preference of people just not understanding their risk to disaster and saying, oh, I'd rather do a remodel of my kitchen. I'd really like those granite countertops, right? And so they're, they're maybe, they have the ability to get a fortified roof or something like that, but they're just making preference choices in some cases. Uh, how I, does that break down, do you think? You know, I, I think that certainly from, you know, with home builders, I mean, I think that's a lot of, of their motivation and why they don't uh, promote, you know, the roof because they know people want the, the, the stuff they can see. And, and, and then, you know, from a re-roof standpoint, you know, part of the problem, say like in Texas, because Fortified doesn't have a footprint, a, a contractor looking at Fortified versus what he usually does thinks, well, you know, this is not something I'm familiar with. You know, they, they probably are pricing that even a little higher than it really needs to be because it's just something they're not familiar with. And so then for a lot of people, it is a price. But if you can show them that you can save them money on their insurance and that those insurance savings can actually kind of be used to sort of finance the upfront cost of the roof and then use those future insurance savings to pay back, uh, you know, that, that loan payment. And you're not gonna get that discount in those insurance savings unless you get a fortified roof. So my approach to this is there are three parts to it. And so I bring together, you know, the insurance, the construction and the financing to deliver that, you know, what I call that, that end-to-end -end solution. So if the homeowner needs all of that, that's, that's what I want to, you know, I can provide. If they don't need financing, that's great. You know, they, they have a contractor they want to use, that's fine too, as long as that contractor knows that that IBHS evaluator has to be able to verify that the work was done properly because so much of the important stuff you can't see it once that roof covering goes on. So they have to be able to verify that, you know, as the work is, is being done. So in so, a way, a lot of this valuable work is in, invisible to the homeowner, but 
you yeah. know, nonetheless, they have a sealed roof deck, right? Even though they don't see it, it's there. Right. And, and that's the thing about fortified that is different, you know, from, you know, some other things that, uh, and, and uh, you know, and a lot of times people will look at like these fortified requirements and they, they want to do this one or that one, but not all of them. And, and you, you can't do that. Fortified in the, in the roof is a system. You have to, you, you have to do all of the things that are required. It is not a la carte. You know, you don't pick and choose. You don't get partial credit for doing 10 of the 12. You have to do all of them because if you don't, you know, if you think about wind, water, they're always, they're looking for any vulnerability in that structure. And if they can find an N anywhere, they will find it and they will exploit it and it will end up taking your roof off. You know, systems are so interesting, and I, always, I often compare to the human body, right? You can have an athlete that is in such great shape and ready to go out there, but if they have a broken ankle, it's just a small part of the body, but they're not playing, right? So it, right. It's, that, that one component cancels out everything else, right? So it, it sounds like it's like, like that with a house. If you have one soft spot, the storm is going to target that and exploit it. Right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the GeoTrek podcast. These are great insights, I think, that communities can use and obviously homeowner, homeowners, individuals. But this concept of getting out there ahead of the storm, like you said several times, we can't stop the storm, but there are things we can do to get out ahead of it and hopefully mitigate against some of these disasters. So, yeah, Eleanor, coming up in the next weeks and months, are there any uh, workshops, any conferences, anything's going on online or in person or, you know, ways that people can kind of follow along with what you're doing or just, you know, get involved in general with improving their own community resilience? I would encourage people to go to the website. There's the IBHS.org, but then they also have a separate one that's just for fortified, fortifiedhome.org. And they can, you know, learn about, you know, Fortified and they'll see, um, you know, there was a lot of coverage after Hurricane Sally. They'll be able to, you know, see some photos and things of, of that. Hopefully, we'll, uh, they can see, you know, you, you look at these photos and see the, like I say, the, the homes with the tarps and the, you know, waterlogged sofa sitting on the curb. And then you look at the house that, you know, doesn't have a tarp on the roof and no, no furniture at the curb. And you think, I want to be that house. That's what they need. To, to see. Eleanor, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. We got a couple great episodes here that really give people a path forward and a message of hope of how they can build better so they can be more resilient in the future. To our faithful listeners, we really appreciate your interest and support in this podcast. We always want to keep the knowledge and the learning that we talk about here very applied. Applied science not only builds our knowledge, but gives us steps and action items that we can use to make ourselves more resilient and prepare our communities in the future. If you can think of topics that you'd like for us to cover, give us a shout and let us know. And thank you so much for listening to GeoTrack.